You're listening to a sermon preached at University Presbyterian Church in Seattle, Washington. For more information, please visit our website, theupc.org. For the next two weeks, we are going to spend some time in a a little obscure minor prophet uh, in the Old Testament named Habakkuk. Uh, It's a a little three-chapter book in the Minor Prophets that was uh, ascribed to the early 6th century B.C., which means that Habakkuk did his work of prophecy just before the Babylonian invasion of Jerusalem, that he was a court or temple prophet uh, living in Jerusalem at a time where things were coming unhinged and and unraveling, and he did his work in in that context of sort of impending doom. Habakkuk is a little obscure book. In fact, in most people's Bibles, the pages are stuck together there, and they've never been uh, unstuck. And yet, it is a book that uh, guides us in an area that is incredibly important to us. And that is mainly, how is it that we pray to God in the midst of being confronted with what philosophers call the problem of evil, and theologians as well? How is it that we pray when we acknowledge, first of all, that God is all-powerful, and secondly, that God is all-loving and good, and yet, thirdly, there is evil in the world? How do we bring those seemingly unreconcilable things together? That's a, a conundrum that has uh, a lot of ink has been spilled over over the years. And there really isn't an answer to that question without somehow discounting one of those three things. We can discount the power of God and say that God is not powerful enough to overcome evil. We can discount the goodness of God and say that God chooses uh, to ordain evil. Uh, Or we can do what some do, and that's say there is no evil. It's just a figment of our imagination. None of those things actually work, do they? And if we are discounting the power of God or discounting the goodness of God, then in the midst of that reality, it's very difficult to pray because we wonder to whom we are praying and whether or not he can do something. So Habakkuk works with this, and he doesn't answer the question for us, but he tells us something about how to navigate a relationship with God in the midst of living in a time when that question is being asked. And so this week we're going to look at the first chapter mainly of Habakkuk, and the first chapter is a dialogue between the prophet and God. And I'm going to signal to you as I read it when those uh, characters change uh, in the context of this passage. But Habakkuk begins and addresses a complaint to God. God comes back with a word that isn't really an answer. And so Habakkuk reapproaches him and complains some more. And then God comes back again to bring a word of encouragement and affirmation to Habakkuk. So listen as I read this dialogue from Habakkuk 1 between the prophet and God. And the first words are the prophets. O Lord... How long shall I cry for help, and you will not listen? Or cry to you violence, and you will not save? Why do you make me see wrongdoing and look at trouble? Destruction and violence are before me. Strife and contention rise. So the law becomes slack, and justice never prevails. The wicked surround the righteous. Therefore, judgment comes forth perverted. And then God replies, Look at the nations and see. Be astonished. Be astounded. For work is being done in your days that you would not believe if you were told. For I am rousing the Chaldeans, the fierce and impetuous nation who march through the breadth of the earth to seize the dwellings, not their own. 
Dread and fearsome are they, their justice and dignity proceed from themselves. Their horses are swifter than leopards, more menacing than wolves at dusk. Their horses charge. Their horsemen come from far away and they fly like an eagle, swift to devour. They all come for violence with faces pressing forward. They gather captives like sand. At kings they scoff and of rulers they make sport. They laugh at every fortress and heap up earth to take it. Then they sweep by like the wind. They transgress and become guilty. Their own might is their God. And then Habakkuk responds, Are you not from of old, O Lord my God, my Holy One? You shall not die. O Lord, you have marked them for judgment, and you, O Rock, have established them for punishment. Your eyes are too pure to behold evil, and you cannot look on wrongdoing. Why do you look on the treacherous and are silent when the wicked swallow those more righteous than they? You have made people like the fish of the sea, like crawling things that have no ruler. The enemy brings them up with a hook. He drags them out with his net. He gathers them in his sane, so he rejoices and exults. Therefore, he sacrifices to his net and makes offerings to his sane, for by them his portion is lavish and his food is rich. Is he then to keep on emptying his net and destroying nations without mercy? I will stand at my watch post and station myself on the rampart. I will keep watch to see what he will say to me and what God will answer concerning my complaint. Then the Lord answered me and said, in God's words, Write the vision. Make it plain on tablets so that a runner may read it. For there is still a vision for the appointed time. It speaks of the end and it does not lie. If it seems to tarry, wait for it. It will surely come. It will not delay. Look at the proud. Their spirit is not right in them. But the righteous will live by their faith. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, by your spirit... Move us into this dialogue between yourself and the prophet. Let these words become our prayer today and find resonance in our souls and so equip us to stay the course, to press on, to learn what it means to trust. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. We just recently got back from vacation, and one of the things that um, I like to do on vacation, other than stare at various bodies of water, um, is is to read books and to to watch movies. And one of the movies that we uh, were able to see was uh, Clint Eastwood's new film, Gran Torino. Uh, Just out of curiosity, how many of you have seen that movie? Okay, about a third of you, it looks like. I won't tell the whole story here. But it's a movie about a man named Walt Kowalski, Eastwood's character. Um, And it's sort of, Kowalski is kind of Dirty Harry pushing 80. Um, (laughs) He is a Polish uh, retired auto worker in, in the city of Detroit whose world is closing in around him. His neighborhood has completely changed. He is uh, a Korean War vet. 
He is someone who feels that change in his neighborhood pressing in around him as African-American, Asian, and Hispanic gangs vie for territory. And his next-door neighbors happen to be a Hmong family, the the Asian uh, tribe uh, from the area of Laos that, that came here following the Vietnam War. And he doesn't know that. He only knows they're Asian. And um, because he's a little racist, uh, that becomes clear in the movie, that he doesn't understand distinctions between Asian peoples. And that becomes kind of one of the themes. But this Hmong family uh, gradually become his neighbors. Even though they're living next door, he gradually, throughout the course of the movie, gets to know them. And the way that he gets to know them and the reason that he gets to know them is that he is brought up short by the reality that he discovers of how Tao, the young 16-year-old boy in this Hmong family, is being constantly badgered and tried to be pressed into service in one of the Asian gangs. And Eastwood, is, is, is character Kowalski, is, is absolutely enraged at the injustice of this young boy who wants to stay out of gangs, and yet it becomes clear to him that it's going to be almost impossible for that to happen and he doesn't know what to do. As Sue Lord, Tao's older sister, says at one point, um, Hmong girls have fared much better in this country than Hmong boys. Hmong girls go to college. Hmong boys go to jail. The story is really about Eastwood waking up, or Kowalski waking up to justice, and how a longing for justice awakens him to his neighbors and to his neighborhood and to a quest for something bigger than what he has known. He's an angry, disappointed, guilty old man, and yet what happens as he is dying of cancer is that he is literally coming alive to truth. And the reason he's coming alive to truth is because of this longing for justice. It's Walt Kowalski's impatience with an anger over injustice that's an image that I want to draw our attention to today. So I encourage you to, I don't encourage you to see this movie. See it if you want to. It's always, it's never a good idea for a pastor to say, go see this movie. (laughs) I I mean, you can come back to me and say, what? (laughs) And you call yourself a Christian? (laughs) So see it if you want to. But what Kowalski is coming alive to is something that is in every single one of us. And that is a longing for justice. It's an awareness in every human being that I think is the seed of the remnant of the image of God in us that looks out on the world and says, something isn't right. Something needs to be put back together. Something's come unhinged and it needs to be remounted because we can't look at the world and not see that something is wrong. When we look out at the unnecessary cruelty, the the holy gratuitous suffering that every day greets us with, not only in the world situation, but through natural disaster and also through just our own kind of brokenness in our very own homes, what we know is something is not right. Something's broken and it needs to be repaired and and put back together. And I believe that what this awareness of injustice does is, is wake us up to God 
and to something bigger that we know ought to be happening, but in the current situation isn't. It's why Psalm 96 that we started the worship service this morning with was, is, is there because it starts with this lovely invitation to sing the new song and it invites all of creation to join in the singing of that song. And then it says why at the end we're supposed to sing that song because God is coming to judge the earth. And we kind of scratch our heads. Well, I liked it up to that point. But that's good news. It's good news that God is coming to put right what is wrong. You've got to get the image out of your mind of God dangling you over the flames of hell and seeing God move into history in such a way that something brand new happens to put us back together with what we were intended to be. That's what it means to judge. That's what it means to put things right, and that's what God promises to do, and that's what the psalm sings of. Because, you see, injustice is a sign of the absence of God. Injustice is the result of godlessness. Injustice is the result of, of idolatry. It's the result of self-worship, of worship of our own power. Habakkuk says this when he puts these words into the mouth of God, when he says, these people, these Chaldeans who are just ripping up this whole area with their armies, their God is their might. Their sense of justice and dignity proceeds from themselves. They don't have anything bigger than themselves. And what we know from history is that every cruel dictator never had anything bigger than himself. He lives in fear of losing his power, and so he lives instilling fear in the people below him because he worships the fragile God of his own power and has to figure out a way of holding on to it. Injustice is about godlessness, about refusing to acknowledge the truth that God is God and about trying to become God ourselves. And so we see all of this. And what we say in the midst of it is there must be something better. We see all of this and we ask along with Habakkuk, why? How? Habakkuk says, Lord, you're not listening Lord, you're not saving. Lord, you're making me see evil. It doesn't fit. There should be something different. And God answers him then. But what's interesting about the answer is that it's not really an answer. Well, here, Habakkuk, let me tell you why this is all going on and how it's all going to fit. No, instead, the answer comes back, you know, I'm doing this thing in your day. I'm sending the Chaldeans in to destroy you. And they're really bad people. That's hardly an answer to where are you, God? It's not the answer that we want, at least. And so it's at that point that the work begins for Habakkuk and all of us. When we're confronted with that reality that the God to whom we're complaining isn't quite giving us the answer that we need or want in that moment. That's where the real work begins, because at that point, what happens is we have to ask ourselves the question is, how am I going to stick with this God through this situation? How am I going to pray? How am I going to navigate this journey of skepticism and doubt and still stay in relationship with the God who made me? Well, that's the choice that Habakkuk makes. 
And it's really his first admonition to us when we face one of these situations of incongruity. When we don't get who God is and what God is doing, what Habakkuk first does is he stays engaged. He chooses to hold on in relationship. And he chooses to bring all of himself and all of his concerns into that relationship. And so he starts first by complaining, how long and why don't you save and why do I have to look at all of this? And when God responds, then he comes back with the second level of his complaint. And he lets God know that his answer, that God's answer is not an answer. You don't see the exclamation marks and the the multiple question marks and bold-faced print in Habakkuk's response to God, but I guarantee you it's there. What? You're sending the Chaldeans? What kind of answer is that? You're sending these horrible people to swallow up and to sweep up in their nets the people more, that are more righteous than they? That doesn't make sense. That's not an answer, God. How can an empire that's the very embodiment of wickedness be at all any kind of tool in your hands? I'm going to have a hard time holding on if that's the case. You know, there's part of us that thinks we're not supposed to talk with God that way. But it's right here in the Bible. <laughs> and Habakkuk teaches us something about prayer in the midst of sharing his prayer with us. There's part of us that thinks that maybe faith is sort of nothing more than kind of a quiet acquiescence and a refusal to to really confront the issues that we're feeling and that we just have to kind of shut up and deal with it. But Habakkuk teaches us differently. And he says, essentially, in his action, he advises us to to keep asking, to rattle the gates of heaven if we have to, and to be like that persistent widow in Jesus' parable and simply keep asking and asking and asking. Why? How is this possible? But you know what's interesting about those two questions, why and how is this possible? They, They don't really ever get answered because we're really asking a different question at that point. And that's the question, who? Who are you, Lord? What are you doing here? Because you're showing me some part of yourself that I don't understand and I need to know. So who are you? And that's the real question of faith, my friends. God often remains strangely silent about those other questions. But he answers this one. Because he invites us to stay in relationship with himself. This is the question, who are you, God, that propels forward the journey of faith. And in many ways, it's the question that propels forward every single relationship that we have. Because we've got to come to attention about who the other is. We've got to let go of our projections of who we thought they were. And we've got to learn who it is we're in relationship with. And once we've asked that question, we need to do exactly what Habakkuk does in this text. And that is to take his place in the watchtower and wait for an answer. And that's what he says he's going to do. I'll stand my watch post and station myself on the rampart.
I'll keep watch to see what God will say to me and what God will answer concerning my complaint. You know, a heck of a lot of the journey of faith is about exactly this. It's about waiting. It's about a willingness to live in this place of tension. A willingness to be in that place where we don't fully understand, and yet somehow we know we can't go back because too much has happened to propel us forward. But in that moment, we're a little stalled. We know enough about God. We have enough experience with God to press on that we don't want to let go, and yet we're mightily tempted to throw it all overboard and strike out on our own. And that's the place that Habakkuk finds himself. But he chooses instead to stay in relationship and to wait and to keep asking that who question because it's the one that God will answer. He enters, if you will, a wordless place at this moment. And I realize that when you talk about the journey of faith entering a wordless place, that is probably the most counterintuitive place for Presbyterians that exists. We love words. And we hope that words will solve all of those problems and answer all of those questions and that somehow if the sentence can just be crafted a little bit better, we'll get it. But faith is a lot about being willing to enter that wordless place and to wait and to watch and to trust that God will reveal the vision. As a congregation, we have spent much of this last year grieving along with Jeff and Karin Town in Ben's death as he died at the age of three in, in December. And as we confront that, I, I've learned a lot about wordlessness. And Karin has been one of the ones who's helped me to understand that when she said, you know, it's not that I don't believe anymore as she grieves. It's that the vocabulary I used to use doesn't fit. The words don't seem to mean anything to me the way they used to. That's what it means to enter the wordless place of watching. To understand that we're gaining a new vocabulary that we're waiting for a new revelation of God, that we're seeking to understand not just the God of our projections, but the God who really is. And in those moments, we have no vocabulary because the words we used to use don't make as much sense. And so prayer in these times, well, it's about saying our peace and offering the complaint but it's also about that wordless watching and waiting for God to reveal the vision. So how does God respond to Habakkuk in the face of this? He essentially says, good choice, Habakkuk. Good choice. So write the vision. Give witness to the fact that there's a reason to wait. Write it big so that one running by it can read it. Because the vision 
might await its time, but it will come. And in your time it might delay, but in mine it won't. And justice will have its day. There's no chiding to Habakkuk here. There's only encouragement. Encouragement to hold on, to give witness, to be faithful. And that's really the key to that fourth verse. When God says the just will live by their faith. You know, when we think of that word faith, we often think of it as a a commodity. As if it's something that we can get more of or have less of. That it's something that we can kind of trade in. But the biblical idea of faith is really not that. It's better translated. In fact, you can even see it in the notes. If you look at those little notes, if your eyes will still let you do that um, in the Bible. Um, It's really more an idea of faithfulness. Faith isn't a commodity that we possess. Faith is faithfulness. It's the act of acting on who we are and staying the course. And we can be faithful in the midst of skepticism and doubt. We can be faithful in the midst of of anger and frustration. Because it's not about not being skeptical or not being angry. It's about staying engaged in relationship with the one who says he's faithful to us. And what that means is saying to God, I don't get it right now. But I'm willing to press on. And I'm willing to wait. And so God says, that's right. The just, those who are in right relationship with me, live by faithfulness. They aren't good little boys and girls with their hands folded, shutting up. They're people who want to know and who stay engaged in relationship with me. One of the things that we also did on vacation was go to my nephew's wedding. He's 25 and and just got married a couple of weeks ago. And in the reception afterwards, the DJ was playing songs. People were dancing. And suddenly a song uh, by the rock group Journey came on. I expect through the day people will know more about Journey. Um, (laughs) Journey's a rock group that recorded this song called Don't Stop Believin' in 1981. I was in my middle year of seminary. That's close to 30 years ago, okay? But this song by Journey came on, and the, the tables were emptied of everyone under the age of 30 who was not around when that song was recorded, and they all started singing it in unison. And I thought, this is fascinating. My life is their nostalgia. What is this? <laughs> And so, you know, don't stop believing. Join me. Hold on to the feeling, right? Okay. So that's going on. And everybody's sort of out there pulsating, you know, and singing this whole song. And I feel like I'm an anthropologist watching a religious ritual. (laughs) So my son comes back in after he's 21. My son comes back in. And I suggested, what was going on with that? I mean, everyone was singing. I, I've never heard someone, you know, a song kind of arouse that kind of, of, uh, of emotion. And, you know, I've since learned that this song is the most downloaded song in the pre-digital age. That, that this song is on everybody's iPod, in other words. And especially this younger group. 
And um, he says, yeah. Uh, yeah, everyone was singing. And like I'm supposed to know. And, um, <laughs> and I said, well, what's going on with that? He said, I don't know. I just know that when that song comes on, you're supposed to sing along with it. And I thought, great. Now, <laughs> and yet as I thought about that, it's, it's exactly what we're talking about today. That a lot of what we sing and do every single time we gather for worship, we're not even really conscious of why we're doing it, but those songs do something to us as we sing them. And that's exactly what was happening on that dance floor. That song, for any number of reasons, was becoming a word of encouragement to culture. It was, you know, and it might even just be people acting, singing a cheesy song. I don't know. But, I mean, I looked at that and I just thought, there's something happening here that's bigger than everybody here. And they're all participating in it. And at some level, it's changing them. Because that word... Don't stop believing. Hold on to the feeling, which invites people to hope in the context of that song. That's what we do every time we gather for worship. And sometimes we gather for worship and we don't know why we're singing what we're singing. But we know it's doing something to us. We know that we're participating in a reality that's bigger than ourselves in that moment. And we come to that place where we're not sure why we're singing sometimes, and maybe we don't even know what the words mean, but somehow joining in the singing of that is enough in the moment. So if you're in one of those places today where the words aren't making sense, what you need to know is that there is a vision, even though sometimes we can't see it. That there is a song even when it's hard to sing it. And there is a mooring and a foundation, even when it feels like we've been cut loose from it. Because our central confession will always be operative. Jesus is Lord. And one day we will see fully and face to face. Let's pray. Lord, root us and ground us in your love. Take us from those spaces of question and move us into that place of certain waiting. Knowing that you are holding on to us and that you will not let go. For we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. For more UPC audio or to find out about service times, visit us at upc.org. All online audio is available on CD and cassette. To order copies of sermons and classes, please visit upc.org slash audio, email audio at upc.org, or call 206-524-7301, extension 117.